I did stumble across a company that you can contract with to design your company town even today. What? You can reach out to them and ask. Yeah, because there's still a lot of mineral extraction going on in Africa, whether it's diamonds or whether it's other valuable resources like that. They're still building these kinds of towns. And this is people buying up farmland to be able to extract it. And so you can reach out to these guys and they'll help design a town that keeps people in one place, limits their information, gives them everything they need and and serves your company ledger. This is a service that's available. Mm-hmm. Yep. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Corporate colonialism is defined as the policy or practice of a wealthy or powerful nation's maintaining or extending its control over other countries, especially in establishing settlements or exploiting resources. Avatar and Dune, anyone? Writer Lindsay DeFratis joins the podcast today to talk about what drives corporate colonialism, how it impacts the native populations, and how fiction can be an effective tool for change. Lindsay DeFratis, thank you so much for joining Speculative Sandbox today. I'm really excited to talk about corporate colonialism. Uh, First, tell me and our listeners about yourself and some of your latest projects. Well, thanks for having me on, Vicki. I am very excited to be here. Um, I am living in Glenwood Springs, which is on the western slope of Colorado uh, in the mountains. We have lots of snow outside today, but we also have a blue sky, which is nice. I work in PR and media, so a lot of what I do involves words all day long. And I also have three kids at home. Um, So when I'm writing, it is usually early in the morning at the 5 a.m. Writers Club or late in the evening after all the bedtimes, if I can wring any more drops of creativity out of it. I'm currently editing um, a science fiction novel, a space Western, and trying to get to the end of that. And I've pitched and queried a few places, kind of just learning the ropes of that, those steps right now, though. Wow. So I didn't know that about your, your I guess, your day gig or your, your daylighting. Um, I also work in PR, communications and media. So Excellent. it goes hand in hand with uh, writing stories because it's a, it's a large part of the job is to create and uh, stories for uh, media relations. I'm guessing that's what you do? Yeah, I work for a small government agency that advocates for um, the Colorado River water on the Western slope of Colorado, actually. So we're not as much marketing. Um, I do a lot of, yeah, media relations in um, journals, journalists, and I do the social and all the newsletters, stuff like that. So yeah, a lot of overlap. Awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. So yeah, you uh, similar similar backgrounds. That's so much fun. Um, all right. So I have some rapid fire warm up questions for you just to get us started. You ready? Oh, let me listen up. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Okay, these are these are easy. They just kind of you know, get us in the right mindset. So the first one is, if you could have an unlimited supply of one thing, what would it be? Uh, you mean like food or water kind of thing, or I, I guess to make it more fun outside of the essential essential like food and water supply um, shelter. If, aside from that, okay, unlimited supply, um, fresh tomatoes. Oh, all fresh year tomatoes. round. 
perfect, not greenhouse, hothouse tomatoes. Gotcha. I used to grow tomatoes when I lived in California. We'd have them growing around the side of the house. And my mom would pick them right off the stem and eat them like an apple. They were really good when you, when you grow them like that. Yep. What TV show are you currently into? Um, uh, so my husband and I used to watch really thoughtful TV and sometimes intense, scary TV, but now we have three children. So anything that involves emotional endurance is off the table. Mm -hmm. So we'll go with the easy ones. Um, I'm really into the detectorists right now. <laughs> oh, where do you get that? Where do you, do you stream it? It's a, on Amazon. It's a little uh, British show that just has to do with a bunch of British folk using um, metal detectors to find what they can about history and, and learning and growing oh, through life that. together. It's quite delightful. That's awesome. Okay. What's a chore that you hate doing? Uh, folding 43 pieces of tiny children's clothes just to know that they will be unfolded 30 minutes later. <laughs> okay. And now these questions are going to segue into our topic a little bit. Um, which corporation do you think is doing the most, ha most harm? In the world? Yes. Oh, man. I, I would have to say it's probably any corporation um, involved in the palm oil industry right now. Okay. What is palm oil? Oh, it's used, gosh, let me see if I can make sure I don't, I didn't have this part pulled up. It's used in, in so many products um, of our food and we rely on it. It's edible vegetable oil um, and it's obviously used a lot in food processing and manufacturing. We have it in beauty products as well as biofuel and there's ways to source it responsibly, but there is there are some very, very egregious corporations involved in it right now. Mm, okay. My next question might seem kind of strange, but to look at the positives, like the, the inverse of my last question is which corporation do you think is doing the most good? Corporations doing the most good. Um, that's, that, that's really hard to say. I, I've become um, very wary of any corporation that spans states and nationalities um, when I find anything doing the most good, it's usually at the local level, the community level. Um, so I, I really can't answer that. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure there are some though that are. Okay. Well, that go there goes our topic, right? Our topic <laughs> is corporate colonialism. And so when I think of corporate colonialism and colonialism and in the speculative fiction realm, the first one, I, the first thing I think of is Avatar, where they yep. go mining on a different planet. And using those resources and affecting the, the native tribes. So yeah, talk to me about colonialism and then corporate colonialism. Sure. So sometimes people today think of uh, corporate colonialism as neo-colonialism. And uh, right now I just have to stop and acknowledge that it has an outsized impact on indigenous populations. Um, and so as I speak from my privilege as a white person here in Colorado, I have to recognize that I am on the lands of the Ute Indians and the Shoshone tribes as well. Um, whenever we're talking about corporate colonialism, it's the idea that businesses built on extracting natural resources for profit can use their might and their means to take over land that isn't theirs, whether it's occupied or foreign, and they exploit usually economic weaknesses in the system or unstable governments to make sure that they can turn a profit at any cost, most costs, um, as long as it looks good on their actual ledger. Um, a lot of times they have investors that take land from, 
from Indigenous people uh, without prior knowledge or consent and eventually leads to those people's removal. So whenever we're talking about corporate colonialism, we definitely have to, to go back around to acknowledge who it is impacting the most. Yes. And comparing it to just regular colonialism, is mm-hmm. is it a government versus corporation difference? What separates those two definitions? That's a great question. Um, in working definitions, now this is not you know 100% across the board, a fixed definition. There's a lot of uh, uh, takes on corporate colonialism, but um, the largest difference is that it doesn't involve armies, weapons, or even often threats of violence to reap the benefits of colonial power. So you get all of the goods without having to maintain um, a system of like military strength. Most of the time it is through financial contributions to political allies, um, promises that everyone's gonna get rich if corporations are allowed to do what they do and that it's gonna be beneficial for everyone involved. Mm, Okay. So then when we think of corporate colonialism, can it, can it, when I think of colonialism, I think of, you know, Britain coming over, colonizing um, French colonies throughout Vietnam. Like it, it seems like a very defined government moving over, invade, invading. Would you say that corporate colonialism can be a more, um, just as damaging, but more like a subtle kind of melting in and taking over? Um, it can be subtle and it can also not be subtle. I think okay. that, the, yeah, it, the damages can be harder to track because they do not involve moving political boundaries. You're not mm-hmm. seeing states and countries change shape. It usually happens within the governments or within the spaces of those countries. So the damages of it and the impact of it is, is often more insidious than um, the traditional in colonialism where you see pieces moving across the map or you see colonies being staked, uh, flags flying, it doesn't look like that. The damages can be more difficult to address because of that, um, because we in our, cor- in our, well, in our worship of capitalism are willing to blame anyone who signed a contract rather than the people who first wrote that contract, if that makes sense. Gotcha, yes, that's, uh, that's a really, really good perspective. So what makes you interested in this topic? What is your relationship to corporate colonialism? So, I mean, it's around all over the world today. Um, personally, I live again on the, in the mountains of Colorado and our history is with uh, natural resource extraction as far back as whether people were looking for pelts and furs from the creatures and then the mining that was looking for silver, gold, more recently uranium, um, even more recently than that. Um, natural gas, uh, oil, all of those industries have a very target on these mountains because they are so full of these mineral resources. So throughout the last 200 years in the places where I've lived, we've had towns that have boom and busted over silver, over gold, over oil. Um, And we're still seeing constant headlines in our local paper about a strip mine that I can almost see from my window here. So the idea of companies taking advantage of resources without regards to their impact on residents is something that I see every day. Mm. Why do you think fiction is such a great tool for exploring corporate colonialism? Um, Because you get to mix truth with escapism. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are tired of reading the headlines. They will listen to a story, though, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you you ever feel that, uh, I guess, (laughs) by reading the story, you can affect change? Or do you think there's still a degree of 
distance or people, oh, it's just a story. And they have a hard time connecting between the fiction world and the real world. I think stories build a framework for action. I don't think stories work with like a heavy handed call to action. If you've ever read Edward Abbey, you can make yourself the judge of that. Um, People who have really heavy handed messaging and stories often turn off a lot of a lot of audiences. However, when there's truth in a story, we are wired as humans to connect with that much more deeply and much more quickly than any amount of facts and name calling that we could possibly pile into, say, a journalism article. If you want an example, um, I don't want to, never mind, I don't want to get too political. There's a lot of examples of people who will take an anecdote from a friend over piles of, say, medical research, and it feels truer because mm-hmm. someone told you a story about what happened to them than the cold numbers on the page. Oh, interesting. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about corporate colonialism in fiction. The one example I mentioned before earlier, Avatar uh, seems to be the most prevalent, especially with the sequel that just hit theaters. Um, another book that I, when I was researching on corporate colonialism is called the terraformers by Annalee Newitz. Mm-hmm. Um, that one, have you read that one or are you aware of that one? It is on the top of my to be read list, which okay. then neglected for a month or two. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfectly fine. Cause I haven't actually read it. Um, I just saw it on the list and it looked like it was co- corporate colonialism is a big part of this one. So now I have, I am adding it to my, to be read list and I'll read like a quick synopsis, but Destry's life is dedicated to terraforming Sask E. So it's a planet. And mm-hmm. as part of the environmental rescue team, she cares for the planet and its burgeoning ecosystems as her parents and their parents did before her. But the bright, clean future they're building comes under threat when she discovers a city full of people that shouldn't exist hidden inside a massive volcano. So it's mm-hmm. interesting because she's there. She's she's like an external force that's come there to oversee this planet. But now it's it seems as if they found the native population. Um, mm-hmm. That's just assumptions on my part. But it must be a really interesting look at corporate colonialism in a, in a sci-fi space opera type perspective. Yes, uh, it does sound amazing. A couple others. So in the recent, the recent publishing, uh, Persephone Station is another great one. Uh, okay. Stina Leek, I'm afraid I'm saying her name wrong. Um, it was recently published and she has just an absolutely fascinating look at the interactions of um, very heavy handed corporation. There's does involve a significant amount of military strength and her, her characters are just dynamic and original and I, I'd highly recommend it. It's very exciting. Do you think it's easier to, because I feel like when it comes to real world applications of colonialism, there seems like so many sensitivities, but with fiction, you can kind of um, have like a bigger, a bigger grasp on the issue. Um, do, do you think that it's like, that's why fiction is also so beneficial. You can kind of wrap it all into what the problem is more clearly than maybe you could addressing headlines in the real life. Absolutely. Um, It's very easy to distract people from the root cause in um, the news cycle. You know, you can have all kinds of drama and red herrings off to the side. As a PR and media specialist, I'm particularly sensitive when you start seeing the headlines shift to focus on what this person said about what the other person said, but they're both important. And so we're reading that now and not about the issue itself. Mm, That's so frustrating. It happens frequently. Yes, it does. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry, you had some other examples? No, no, I was just going to say, if we're going classic examples, we do have to nod to Dune, of course. Yes, Um, yes. That's one of the biggest ones. And I think that one does, I think in its time, did a very good job of capturing the impact of uh, that kind of overreach on indigenous populations and looking at how a resource can become um, 
in the, it's as though everyone in the galaxy thinks they own it because it was discovered and because they now use it all the time. And so how that shifts the value of the planet or the people on it um, sort of irrevocably once everyone believes that they are entitled to it. Let's talk about that, that entitlement, because that, mm-hmm. that must be the root behind a lot of a lot of the actions of corporate colonialism. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it is at its root, it is probably closer to ex- intentional exploitation where vulnerable establishments have valuable resources. And I think one of your questions, maybe I'm jumping ahead later, uh, just talking about villains though, because I often equate the two. Um, The people who become the villains in a world run by corporate colonialism are those who believe either consciously or just through hubris or even unconsciously through an ingrained survival instinct, perhaps they themselves never had the resources they need. Um, that might is going to make right. And so sometimes it's tied to power, but at its root is always going to be security. The people who just always feel like they're going to need more. And there's definitely those who just want more. But I think more often than not, that entitlement goes along with the sense of I don't have enough. I have to keep shoring up my power. I have to have more saved. I have to have a better position, a stronger perspective. You know, we look at corporate colonialism as the evil, but I don't always know that it starts that way. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think of, you know, many of the rhetoric that we hear now, why things go overseas is to benefit us and our people and mm-hmm. our, you know, accessibility to goods. Um, and meanwhile, like, for example, um, you know, the diamond industry, we all go, oh, this is so beautiful. So then you find out like all the bloody, terrible things that are happening in the the communities where they're extracting these these diamonds mm-hmm. um i'm trying to think of some other example like sweatshops you know um we all benefit like we know very like we know that Shein is a sweatshop store and mm-hmm. they rip off designers and um people don't care because they can pay five dollars for a fashionable shirt and so right. then the damage just keeps going yeah and i think you're right that that does tie back to entitlement we we now are trained to believe that we need all of these things and you know could we do it less that's mm-hmm. always the question um another modern example i just wanted to throw out too is uh kind of a brutal one but in liberia after 2014 they'd had civil war and then an ebola outbreak and corporations interested in rubber logging and palm oil swept in and bought up just heck millions of hectares of farm, sorry, <laughs> of farmland, um, forests, peatlands, and they turned it into monocropped plantations for soil, oh, for wow. soy, oil, palm, and other cash crops. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's again that we're rescuing these people from their poverty, from their, you know, their insecurity, their in- inability to save themselves, and then they're spending a hundred dollars to buy what would be an endlessly renewable resource in um, in its natural environment. Yeah, I was looking into that case too, and mm-hmm. how like there's a lot of promises. Uh, for instance, substance farmers are promised great financial rewards to convert their crops accordingly, mm-hmm. while being assured that they'll see community benefits in the forms of schools and clinics. But then they were forced to clear that land, mm-hmm. and a lot of the promised infrastructure never came. So it's scary to, uh, and it's funny because I feel like this is something that's also kind of explored when you look at, you know, any kind of movie like Avatar or Pocahontas, mm-hmm. where it's like, what do these settlers want, you know, and will we get something out of it? And you want to have good faith and think that these people trust in you, but then the outcome results in lots of um, death and uh, exploitation. It's mm-hmm. it's just, is, has there ever been in a case like 
what would you call a case where that doesn't happen, where newcomers come in and it's like a beautiful uh, merging of worlds? Um, that's a really hard one. It, it's interesting that you ask for that because I've seen those sort of requests appear on agent manuscript wish lists recently, where it's Ooh. the the un, either the uncolonized world, of course, or the one where there were positive solutions for all involved. And I have been frustrated because it's hard for me to imagine those. I'm I'm so steeped in this culture that we've built around exploitation of resource resources and if we can go and lay a claim on it if we can draw our lines on the map it's ours yeah it's so hard to imagine what would it look like to share that space that is it I didn't realize that that was something that was showing up on wish lists um I my mother grew up in the French colonies of Vietnam and mm-hmm. what's really interesting is like I see like the the long-term impacts I've been reading up on the states of a lot of the like she lived she was a she was orphaned in her youth. And so she was in like one of those religious homeschooling, boarding school situations. And she would tell me stories. And then I went back and started reading stories mm. on the conditions of these schools. And they're terrible. Like I understand why my mom struggles with the things that she struggles with now, but she came over to America and a lot of people just see her as Vietnamese, but mm-hmm. even she has a split personality because she grew up in the French colonies. So Vietnam was her second language. Um, she understands Westernized French culture. The Vietnamese culture was street learned and she feels comfortable talking like, like street Vietnamese, but she gets mm-hmm. really scared to teach me you know, so it's just really interesting because I've seen like the effect, it's like it's a forceful effect of these colonizations and it divides people. And so, yeah, the idea of can there be a peaceful version of it? I mean, if someone's coming into your world and they're affecting your culture, can that even be peaceful? Well, I think affecting cultures can be certainly, but when we are using the phrase corporate colonialism, corporate by definition involves a ledger, profits mm. and losses. Yes. And so as soon as you attach monetary measurable profit and loss to the value of a place or culture or people, the equation is already broken. Because mm-hmm. people are just numbers now. Right, exactly. And I think that in, in my book, at least one of the things I explore is the company town um, tied to that idea. So we, there, it, it does, we do see a lot of the negative effects of that, that rush to colonize and exploit the resources. That's a big theme in the book, but the people themselves are all participants in the smaller version of that, which is the company town where the human resources that they provide are measured by profit, profits and losses. And um, like you said before, they're offered that subsistence opportunity, but, oh, you can do better, you can do more. And these these towns are are part of the calculations for a quarterly profit. So um, if we're looking at other examples in the real world, back to the mining towns, um, mm-hmm. So around Colorado, um, a couple come to mind, maybe Somerset and Ashcroft and um, Redstone. And these, these towns were all here on the Western Slope near where I live. And the companies, the mining companies would to varying degrees provide um, resources. They would provide homes. You would get credit at the company store and they did it all along a scope. There's always the most exploitive and then there's the best. So if you look at Redstone, it's an interesting example. One of the um, big railroad barons, the Vander- Vanderbilt era barons came out and bought up this land up the Crystal River Valley. And they built 
pretty nice homes. They, they created this town where they hoped that their workers could actually stay. So there was room for families to grow. There was churches, schools, not just entertainment. And as I think we'll talk about later, unhealthy coping mechanisms. So mm -hmm. on the one end, those, those were people who were hoping that their employees would stay and perhaps saw more value in them. And then you have other ones um, like Somerset, which is this tiny town in Gunnison County that almost no one knows about. And it was just dumped by its quote, corporate parent, I guess, it, within the last 10 to 15 years, they pulled out from, from coal mining and sort of left the town to its own devices. It doesn't have a government structure. Its water system is, is antiquated and keeps failing tests and there's no one to prop it up. And all of the homes were eventually sold to the residents, I think sometime in the 60s, but the resources are just not available to make it a vibrant community. And there's, they're reeling from that right now. You can drive through it and just see this sort of ghost town where people are, you know, they're all, people are resilient. I'm never gonna downplay that. They've bounced back in surprising ways, but when you look at it on paper in our state, in my lifetime, <laughs> to have a, a corporation just suddenly view an entire town as a loss and just yeah. pull out and leave them to figure it out. That, tell me about unhealthy coping methods. Oh, tell me, Vicki, as a question back to you, what is the most bored that you have ever been? Oh, gosh. Um, probably not as bored as living in a mining town, I'm guessing, if there's no work and you've been abandoned. You know, it's, it's so many things, right? So your day-to-day -day work, first of all, if you're in one of these towns, if you're in a mining town, or my experience personally, I worked for Rocky Mountain Youth Corps, which is not exploitive at all. I just, it involves some very repetitive manual labor, carrying rocks, moving buckets of rocks, digging in the dirt with tools for nine hours a day, literally just moving rocks, nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so if you're somebody who has a, an intellectual life and you're used to conversation and reading and interest, you have to discover this whole part of your brain that functions in boredom that doesn't track every second passing. For me, I signed up for a six-week stint doing that, and I barely made it through. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done at that age. Um, Wait, what did you, really, so what did you have to do during that time? So we were building trails. Okay. So we were trail maintenance crew, sorry for the context there, um, uh -huh. high Rockies. So we would hike up to our sites, and we'd camp in our tents um, every night for about six weeks working with a team of, of 10. So I had beautiful vistas and I had good food and I had the assurance that this was temporary. Without that assurance and, and it's your life, you start to flirt with the hopelessness and you never want hopelessness in your head. So you're always going to try and drive it away. What are you going to drive it away with? I mean, pick any of the classic vices, hmm. drinking, drugs, um, relationships that are, shall we say, not healthy, hmm. um, anything like that. There's so many different ways, but if you're truly bored and you're truly sure that you'll never get out of here, because somehow you just can't beat the company's ledger. You just can't have enough credits. They say you were going to this time, but then the cost of goods rose or the cost of travel rose and it's all controlled by one company. It's that hopelessness that, uh, that really takes you down and you look for any escape from it. In the event that your community is a future target of corporate colonialism, are you going to hear any particular rhetoric or messaging ahead of their arrival to like, to like get your buy-in or anything like that? Or they, do they just like show up, plant their, themselves down and take over? For my community, because we have the privilege of being a financially healthy, um, lots of people are native English speakers. It would have to look like some serious promises, 
I mean, it's this, I don't, I don't know how to say it. I don't think. Like 500 more jobs are coming to this region. Right. And you go, yeah. Well, didn't, didn't Google and Facebook just do that? Didn't they try to start their own company towns out there in the valleys in uh, California? And they I basically be surprised if they promised did. housing and transportation and uh-huh. resources and stores and everything. And I don't have the details, so I don't want to. Well, uh, actually, I talked about that in another episode, (laughs) like corporatocracy, the idea of corporate towns um, based off of the the cell phone cities and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I did see that uh, headline come out because Rob Hart shared it and he's like, (laughs) people have been reading his book. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, it's kind of scary because yeah, they promise you this almost this whole city, but then you become really dependent on them. And then once you become dependent on them, they start pulling, like they start charging you and you have no other options. They create their own banking system. Yeah, all those things. Well, and the other thing too, is just to circle back to the very beginning, largely the system only becomes like that when you bring your your corporate desires into a vulnerable population with resources. So those of us who have an educated population who have government checks and balances are less likely to suffer from it as opposed to an area that's unstable because of disease or war or doesn't have financial resources or a stable government. So when we're looking at who's at risk, it's definitely not necessarily us. That being said, it's really interesting because strange relationships develop with a company when you depend on them for everything. So you'd think, you know, you can hate them, but that even becomes part of your identity. It's very difficult to um, extract yourself and your direction in life from that corporate entity when it controls every aspect of your life. And that's something that my characters kind of flirt with as well. Like they outwardly despise this company, but when it comes down to it, it's so ingrained in their fabric of who they are and what they see themselves becoming um, that it's equally impactful as if you were just a company sycophant. Is it kind of like when there's a Walmart in your town and they basically eliminate all, you know, mom pa shops because they can't compete and you hate them for it, but they become the only resource you have. So you shop at Walmart, even though you hate Walmart. Right. And people are inherently adaptable. And so honestly, they bring Walmart into their culture, into their day-to-day life, into who and where they're meeting and what they're doing. And then it becomes inextricable. You can't pull it out when it impacts you on so many levels. Interesting. And the other thing that companies do that's really interesting to the populations that they are maybe more the employees, the company town part instead of the exploited populations is when resources are scarce, in, there's an us versus them mentality, right? So perceived scarcity drives our psyche in a big way. And we're going to always try to defend what's ours against those that would take it. Instead of looking up, though, very often those divisions fall with the workers, between the workers. There's there's when there's a filter on all the information they're getting, there's room for conspiracies, there's room for tribalism, there's room for this, like there's not enough to go around, so I have to fight for what's mine, which means that they are less likely to then turn against the actual source of the problem. And you say perceived scarcity. Are there instances where the scarcity is manufactured? Well, if you have a supply line that's controlled by one company that's only interested in their bottom line, they'll definitely be scarcity because why would they send too much to somewhere and make sure that there's, it, it's difficult to play with. Um, I would imagine, I'm trying to think if there's any examples. I don't want to speculate too much. Well, I always think about one, like, I think, I don't know if it's, it's true or not, but you know, the headlines I hit, like, we're going to have a bacon shortage. We're going to have a chocolate shortage. <laughs> yes, and yes. then we all end up buying a ton of bacon and chocolate. And it then I don't right hear now. about shortages yeah. anymore. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, and that's and that's definitely it, especially um, when there's only one person writing the headlines for these towns. So that's I think where science fiction allows us to to take this um, another step because nowadays we think of the connectivity that we have with cell phones and the internet, and so of course with with speculative fiction, you've got to remove that from the equation. You know, somebody could just look something up and be like, oh, that's not fair. They're doing X, Y, and Z to us. Let's move over here. Um, <laughs> that's why speculative fiction, I think, plays with these isolated communities so much because then you get to really uh, put a microscope on the human, on human nature when you don't feel secure, when you don't have another option. Well, I do kind of see a lot of the, um, the controlled narrative online um, because a lot of people moved away from Google as a search engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see it too. Like I remember five, six years ago, if you had a problem with the platform, like Instagram just had an update and they're doing something funny with captions, you can Google that and you will find the most relevant information to it. And it would always be some obscure chat box and someone is trying to talk about, you know, a workaround and you go, yeah, that solved my problem. Awesome. Now, mm-hmm. when I write that same kind of search, it only gives me Instagram's help pages Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to find someone outside of Instagram. So you could tell that the SEOs are, are like on fire right now for these major corporations. So now people are moving to TikTok, which is interesting because I've noticed that they've really in- increased their search functions, but TikTok is also guilty of creating the, um, the tunnel effect mm-hmm. where you only see the things that reaffirm your, your, your thoughts and your inner circle. So it's also hard to get outside of that way of thinking. So I think back to the wild, wild west of the internet decades Mm -hmm. ago, and we've definitely (laughs) moved away from it. Yeah. The filter bubbles that we've created around ourselves are unbelievable, almost incomprehensible. When you think that there's millions and millions of people on the same platform every day, and yet you only hear messaging from the same 30. Mm-hmm. or you only see the same six corporations showing up in your sidebar ads. Um, and so that tracks with, uh, with with everything that we're saying as far as controlling the narrative. By the way, just on a bit of a tangent, um, have you read the book Feed? I have not. It was a young adult novel that was written by Anthony Anderson. And I read it back in the mid-aughts, early aughts. Um, and of all of the dystopians, you know, you look at your Brave New World, your 1984, what's it going to be? That book nailed it. 100% okay. hands down. As far as like controlled messaging or? or- yeah, controlled messaging and the corporate aspect of people being um, only looked at as their ability to provide profit as um, predictable consumers. Gotcha. So that's a little bit on the tangent from where we are right now. But if you just want to read a book that is the most accurate version of how it'll all fall apart, I would I would point. Okay. To Feed. Okay. Good to know. Uh, what other examples of? Oh, so sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I missed that. I sorry. I apologize. Um, there was a Netflix movie that was called the same thing, and maybe it was based off it, but that's not. It's not the same. Oh, okay. Any other uh, real life corporate colonialism examples that you could think of? Um. So, real life examples. Well, it's not really a real life example, but I did stumble across a, uh, a company that you, I mean, it is real life, but a little off the topic of the question, a company that you can contract with to design your company town, even today. What? You can reach out to them and ask, yeah, because there's still a lot of mineral extraction going on in Africa, whether it's diamonds or whether it's other valuable resources like that, they're still building these kinds of towns. And this is, there's people buying up farmland to be able to extract it. And so you can reach out to these guys and they'll help design a town that keeps people in one place, limits their information, gives them everything they need and 
and serves your company ledger. This is a service that's available. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm not going to give you the name just because I, again, I don't know how well these people are connected. Um, but if, <laughs> if you look it up for designing your own designing company town or plat for company town, you'll probably stumble across it. <laughs> wow. That just makes me think of, um, the Sims, you know, uh, the <laughs> Sim city where I'm, I'm following this guy. I think it's, it's like, Oh no, Jackery might be the Jackery. Don't, I think is his TikTok handle where mm -hmm. he creates the most ridiculous city, like he made a spiral city where you have to complete an entire one-way spiral to enter and exit a community, <laughs> and like all the craziness that comes out of it. But um, I imagine a software like that be very effective when planning your corporate colony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's very much a, a modern discussion. What is the we we talked about this, but I guess this is where my question is more explicit. But what is the root of corporate colonialism? when we get down to the nitty gritty of human behavior and groupthink, And I thought this question would help for things like character developments and establishing systems of oppression. It's again, it, it comes back a little bit to the idea that if you can, you should, and that if it makes a profit, you definitely should. Mm. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's not pervasive across the world by any means. It's a very Western ideal, but if you're, you know, if you're like me and you're writing from that perspective, um, that is a driving factor. And so there's no actual malice towards the people that you're exploiting. Maybe there's even some guilt when you see the systems that you've disrupted, but in your mind, there is a higher value. There is a higher power of quarterly growth. Gotcha. So creating characters, we, we talk so much about, you know, don't make your villain two-dimensional. I mean, there's some merit mm -hmm, in a two-dimensional mm -hmm. villain, but if, by having a three-dimensional villain, um, they're not going to be this ah, 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 taking right. over these little, you know, communities just for the sake of it being evil. It's like they have this, well, first of all, internal bias probably mm -hmm. for that community itself and this focus on finances and maybe even this accountability towards other people, right. That are relying on them to make money, the, the, the stockholders or whoever. So there's a lot of like, it makes them more relatable. They're still awful. Like there's stress associated with that role. Absolutely. Um, my villain goes a bit of a different direction. She is always, she came from a very un, unsecure background where she never had enough resources, never enough food, um, lived through a worldwide famine and had to do all kinds of terrible things to survive. And so her entire goal, every single move she's ever made has just been to shore up her power so that she never feels vulnerable again. Wow. At the risk, at the cost of others. And at, at, at the cost of anything. Yeah. I mean, she, she can't, whatever wall she's built for herself never will allow insecurity into her life again. And she'll keep moving up and up and up to the point where she's basically, you know, spoilers, whatever, selling an entire planet to secure her position. Isn't that interesting how you can come out of trauma, like many ways, but you could either, you know, in, in, in an attempt to secure your own safety push that same exact trauma under other people, or you can grow from the trauma and not try not to create those circumstances again. It's really interesting. It's very human to go whatever way, you know, you you're triggered to go. Yeah. Yeah. I struggle with that in my book. My main character has the same inklings and, and has to make different choices, which are also very difficult for her to not end up that way. But there's a lot of similarities between her and the villain. Interesting. So in a, in the circumstance of corporate colonialism, is it one villain or is it many? 
know, I think different points in history would answer that differently. There are certainly examples um, where charismatic individuals are very driven humans who had a the ability to sway others and the ability to make choices that impacted millions stepped into that role. And then I also feel like there's opportunities for the faceless bureaucracy to steamroll through um, otherwise vulnerable situations. So what what can be done by the like it is this community completely helpless it because of their conditions they were targeted you know because they're helpless are they able to get help somehow um what is the solution for things like this well it struggle it brings back down to another just omnipresent theme in science fiction and that's the idea of the other right your characters who are viewed as other than the dominant culture And I think that you can't talk about corporate colonialism without looking at it from that perspective. And so it's super important for those communities to not internalize the otherness, um, to protect their culture and their values. And for those of us who don't understand them to get out of the way so that they can take that power back. Mm -hmm. Because as long as they're seen only as a value of their resources, they're not even in the conversation. And as long as we can make room for more of those voices to join the conversation, to explain to us everything that we don't understand. <laughs> yes. There was, uh, that's, that's all I could see making a difference. There was that pipeline project mm-hmm. um, that was going to cross native lands and there was a lot of noise against it. And I believe it still happened. And then there was an oil spill recently. Have you been following yeah. that project? I have. Yes. Is yeah. that is that a, an example of what we're talking about today? Absolutely. A, heart, a really heartbreaking example. Um, because other voices don't have the weight and the microphone and the platform. And so they make the headlines for as long as the headlines are getting clicked on. Mm-hmm. And then when we're tired of hearing about it, that's the only platform and it gets taken away. You and I both having a media relations background, can these community members deploy effective PR that will help elevate their voice? And by that, I mean, like it even has to be very clickbaity, right? Like, can they, can they deploy those same tools or do you think that there are barriers in the way? Well, I'll point to one positive example. And again, I don't mean to take ownership for this by explaining it to you, and I'm very much on the outside of it. Um, But the the tribes in the Colorado River Basin, um, as we are dealing with a water storage crisis across a basin that affects 40 million people, um, they have traditionally, while they have owned water on paper, have never been given the resources to actually develop that water. So for example, uh, tribal lands that across the Colorado River, you know, not having the money, which is millions and millions to build infrastructure to take the water out, to treat it, to make it potable. And as we're looking at diminishing resources, they have actually come, been invited fortunately and have made their voices heard at the table. There's several very outspoken individuals who make te- who do testimonies um, at Senate Agriculture Committee hearings. And there is hope that their calls on the river will be honored even as we look at potentially reallocating some of those resources. So 
but the amount of work that they have had to do to be in to have a door cracked open for them individuals who put themselves through law school to be able to advocate for their communities even though no one in their lives had ever um, mentored that path for them mm-hmm. um, and though and then suddenly because they can show up and sound like we expect someone to sound or look like we expect someone to look at a committee hearing mm-hmm. they're getting listened to I don't honestly know if that's solving the problem but in the in the few it, like what we're looking at with the Colorado River right now, it gives me some hope. So when we speak with tribes about these water resources as um, as a culture that wasn't raised as a native culture, I am looking at it in measurement quantities, how much water, how much money, how much irrigation, how many acres of land. And when they consider the future choices that we're going to have to make, and you speak to someone like Amelia Flores, who speaks for the 10 tribes in the Colorado State, Colorado River Basin, um, and she talks about, well, we are meant to take care of the river as well. Mm. And you're like, what, really? And, and that just hasn't even been in the conversation yet. And so they've, they have had to leave their premise of, of cultural understanding. I, I can't get into this because I feel like I'm appropriating it too much, but it's, it's amazing the patience and persistence that has been shown for them to, to be able to, to have come as far in the conversation as they have. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been... A very interesting conversation, especially because corporate colonialism is a big part of of speculative fiction. Um, we've we've covered a couple of of examples, but just the idea of this this fight between um, a a community and people against something that feels so powerful. Um, and the the I don't know if it, the fight, the, the good and evil, you know, as it's portrayed in in fiction so do you have any like final comments or ideas about corporate colonialism that you like to leave with our listeners i I think that because we see so much of it in our modern world it is it's a very relevant topic and if you decide to place characters within that system you're going to see a lot of reflection on day-to-day life which i think creates um great tension and propelling people forward they get to do some of the things that we wish we could do you know um, in my book, it, it comes down to accepting the other and that not all, quote, problems or changes or differences need to be fixed and that in that way they are successful in the long run. Um, there's a lot of richness in character development when you're in that sort of small town, that company town, there's the, um, all the, there's the unhealthy coping mechanisms, there's the, there's the very tribalistic nature of us versus them, bit of small town hysteria, maybe a mob or two, I don't know. But when you have characters who are under that sort of pressure and who are unable to escape it, everything's controlled from the outside, you are going to see them just change and grow and be very interesting people who probably swear quite a bit. <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed um, having this. So where can people find you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at LMDefrades. And then I have a website, lindsaydefrades.com. And I have a fledgling TikTok, lindsay.writes. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.